Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tech Chat. Russ here. Dr. Pete is here as always. Hello, Dr. Pete. Hey, guys. Welcome back for tuning into the show. We've missed you over the last 14 days, uh, so it's good to be back on the air. It is indeed. Now, Pete, uh, we talk about security sometimes on the show, but it obviously is at the absolute forefront of everything that we do at AWS. So we thought we should start this show with a little roundup of some of the security best practices that you should be following. And doesn't matter whether you've been on the AWS platform for an hour or for a year, it's always good just to, to revisit some of those best practices. So give us a quick uh, quick rundown on some of the things we should be doing, Pete. Absolutely. And you're right, whether you've been on the platform for five minutes or a lot longer, it's always good to uh, refresh your security uh, you know, uh, stature, see what you're doing, make sure you're complying and uh, doing the right things because uh, you know, one wrong move and uh, you certainly don't want to be uh, compromised. So when you think about it, after you create your first AWS account, you might be tempted to just jump on and do um, you know, go and deploy something like your website or your your first virtual machine. Um, but you know, we do often recommend that you stop for a second and uh, think about some of the best practices for the usage of AWS resources. And one of the first things to consider is to make sure you uh, uh, think about your root account because uh, you don't want that being compromised. And the root account is the email address that you use to create the account uh, because you certainly want to safeguard that and protect it at all costs. So a um, couple of other things to consider are the likes of using strong passwords uh, to make sure that uh, when you have access to your AWS account or maybe other accounts that you create uh, have a very complicated password. So it's, uh, Russ, it's not easily guessable. You certainly don't want to use uh, password uh, or variation of password as the password itself. That could be very, very problematic, right? You think that's, and, a, um, think that's a problem? Well, there was a published list a little while back, and this comes up every now and again, of the most popular passwords. And password does tend to be uh, one of the most popular <laughs> popular guessable dictionary attacks that uh, most hackers actually use to log in. So uh, if you have that password, please go away and change it. <laughs> <laughs> so other things to consider. Um, you know, using IIM users. So this is the identity and access management users that you would set up uh, for everybody else who might be using your account. Uh, and in fact, you probably want to do it for yourself as well. Now, on the email side, uh, for the email that you have used to perhaps create the account, it would have been kind of cool and maybe clever uh, if you could maybe have that account. So it could be like, you know, uh, you know, Stansky or Russell at, at, at uh, Amazon.com, uh, if that was maybe a group email alias. So imagine if you go and leave, for instance, um, and, uh, you know, someone needs to reach out to you, as we do often based on an email alias. Uh, if it actually goes to a group, you have a lot more people who are able to see messages from us. Uh, so it's certainly worthwhile considering using email aliases uh, when you do create uh, the accounts in AWS. Uh, and you yeah, also, also want to make sure those are always kept up to date, right? So very, yeah, very important. Indeed. And the other cool thing is, um, you know, a password is not enough, usually. 
Um, so we often talk about using multi-factor authentication, uh, which is potentially either a hardware little dongle device uh, or perhaps a, uh, a soft dongle that you might be running on your mobile phone. Mm. Um, and the important thing with that is uh, it's yet another level. It's, it's, you know, it's another key that you need to provide, another factor uh, as part of the authentication process to make sure that um, you are who you say you are. Um, the other thing to also consider is, and if you are super, super um, you know, uh, security conscious, you might actually turn on MFA on the root account, uh, never use your root account, um, assign an MFA to it, so a multi-factor authentication device, and lock that in the safe. And that way, you are super duper secure. And what you would then do is create maybe another identity and access management user as your day-to-day user account that you're using. And also, you probably also want to turn off the the actual uh, account keys that have been assigned to your root account and use IIM users, groups, and roles for all of your daily activities and providing access to your infrastructure. Um, so that's really important. Um, and finally, um, don't forget CloudTrail. CloudTrail is uh, available in all AWS regions. You, you turn it on and it will log all of the activity um, that actually has been going against all of the APIs that uh, um, you know represent the services. So if you ever need to track back who, what, and when did something, you certainly can uh, get that visibility in your CloudTrail logs. And in fact, um, I've had a couple of scenarios where customers had to go back and better understand what happened when they were compromised. So in those unfortunate mm-hmm. moments, um, it actually helped the security teams, the forensics, um, to actually go through and see what did the actual hacker do. Uh, and in this case, you could quickly identify the hacker only did, you know, uh, use, you know, launch an EC2 instance to maybe, you know, do some Bitcoin mining, um, all those kind of things. So it's very, very important to enable CloudTrail so that you know exactly uh, what's been going on in your account. Indeed. So, and let me just throw in a little plug here for uh, oh, yeah. Athena as well. We've talked mm-hmm. about Athena in the past. Um, and, uh, of course, Athena can very easily give you SQL access to CloudTrail. So, uh, so if you you know if you wanted to to very quickly see the records between a certain um, you know a certain between two timestamps, you can do that through um, Athena because your logs go into S three. So, Russ, Correct. do you think you're famous? I want to change topics now. Do you think we're famous? You know, Pete, I had this conversation with someone the other day, and I said to them, <laughs> I, I really hope that I don't become famous because there's nothing worse than going to the supermarket. Uh, in your pajamas, you know, because you've you've need to pick up some milk, and people recognise who you are. Do you do that? Well, I can I I can do that now if I wish. I don't, but I could. I could do right. that because no one knows. Okay, who interesting I am. insight into your personal life, Russ. <laughs> but uh, but, um, but I'd hate to think that I couldn't do it because mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you don't want your photos ending up on the front page of the uh, of the newspaper. Indeed, and the reason I actually asked that question is that. Um, AWS recognition now supports the ability to actually detect celebrities in images that you actually throw against the service. Ah. So, Russ, I actually uh, had a go at taking your mugshot and my mugshot, and it's official. We are not famous, oh, uh, and we're both goodness. happy about it. 
That's great. Yes, so we're not celebrities <laughs> because now Amazon recognition is able to detect um, and recognize hundreds of thousands of individuals who are famous, noteworthy, or prominent. So we're, it's good to know that we're none of those. So we're still hiding in the weeds. So if you're, if you're on TV, uh, in movies, a uh, political figure, or perhaps in business or sport, uh, we can give you information as to who they are. So if you've got all your images sitting in S3, uh, have a go at throwing those at um, recognized celebrity API, which is part of AWS recognition, um, and quickly find out who's actually in frame. So it's a, quite a useful service. Uh, and when it reports back, and I had a go at throwing some celebrities into the um, recognition service, uh, it actually returns you some, obviously, the confidence score, how confident we think this is the celebrity uh, and their name, but we also give you a link to additional information. So uh, uh, quite often, we'll throw a link to things like IMDB, if they're a, a TV or um movie celebrity, and you can do some additional reading about that individual. So it's a great way of uh, getting more insights, I guess, from images and uh, letting us do all the heavy lifting. And uh, for those of you who uh, use recognition, you probably know it's in the US East, US West, and in Ireland. Um, So yeah, go have a look at uh, the new service, Russ, um, and then find out whether you are or not a celebrity as far as recognition thinks that. Fantastic. Well, thanks for checking, Pete. You put my mind at rest now. (laughs) You can go to your supermarket and buy milk in your pajamas. I will be doing that tomorrow morning. (laughs) Fabulous. So from facial recognitions and celebrities to DynamoDB autoscaling, Russ. How cool is this? Some people think spotting a celebrity is exciting, but for you and I, Pete, it's all about the tech. And this is very, very exciting for anybody who uses DynamoDB. Now, as you know, Mm. DynamoDB is our NoSQL database. Uh, Very, very low latency reads and writes, et cetera very highly scalable. Um, but until now, you would have to scale it yourself. So you would actually have to manually say, I want to change the provision throughput on my table. So we provision reads and writes separately. Uh, so you can have different levels of those depending on your workload. But a lot of customers said what would be really nice is if we had some auto scaling on the table so that the mm-hmm. system would actually automatically uh, change provisioning based on the incoming traffic. So that's what we have now released with Dynamo, Pete. Which is very cool. So what, you just dial in your, uh, your thermostat settings for throughput, right? Essentially, yeah. So what you do is you, you put in three different values. So you tell us the, the minimum throughput that you want on the table, the maximum uh, throughput, uh, and then you set a utilization percentage as well. So this is going to be the percentage of the provision throughput that the traffic is going to take up. So, for example, if you set it at 70%, we'll try and keep your provision throughput um, or we'll try and keep the traffic level to be 70% of whatever um, the provision throughput is and we'll try and track as closely to that um, as we can. Uh, so, it, you can turn it on for um, uh, new tables, obviously, and existing tables as well. And you can also do it for global secondary indexes as well, because as you know, the global secondary indexes have uh, separate provision throughput to the underlying base table. Mm-hmm. And so you can also set uh, auto-scaling on those as well, which is, uh, which is really nice. And uh, how fast does auto-scaling actually kick in for, for Dynamo now? So it's designed to, to really kind of track uh, a, a, you know, an, up, an uptick in traffic uh, over a sustained period. So uh, it's going to use CloudWatch to keep track of that. 
uh, and it's going to kick in um, after a couple of minutes. So if you've got uh, you know very spiky traffic that kind of gives you a short spike, autoscaling is not going to really help you with that. That's where you'd use things like the, the table's burst capacity, for example. So um, as you know, with Dynamo, each table's got the ability to, um, to burst for a short period if it's got some credits there, and that will usually cover the spikes for you. If that, however, is something that's happening to you a lot, you might also want to have a look at DAX. So DAX we talked about a couple of episodes ago, currently in preview, but that's a caching layer for Dynamo, um, an in-memory caching layer that's obviously going to be able to to deal with with those read spikes um, even more effectively than Dynamo does. But uh, but yeah, very exciting. I know a lot of customers have asked for this for a long time and uh, very, very easy to set up. Um, so yeah, and that is actually available um, everywhere that, um, that Dynamo is available. Mm, which is everywhere. Now, it's everywhere. That's right. <laughs> Tell us about some TTLs and exploration so while, and how useful that, that can be. Indeed. So while we're on the subject of Dynamo, another feature that was much asked for, which we delivered um, a little while back, is the time to live feature for Dynamo. So a lot of customers like to have uh, items expired out of Dynamo because they don't necessarily need them in there taking up space um, after a certain period of time. So what people used to do was they'd go through and manually delete them, which obviously is a bit painful. So when we added TTL, you can actually set a um, set a time uh, on a particular item, and then we'll basically go through and and um, and expire stuff that's that's gone past that date. Now, as we talked about previously, that does work really well with Dynamo uh, DB streams. So when something is actually expired, it will turn up in the stream, which is really nice. So you can kind of deal with that downstream if you if you need to. But mm. what we've recently added is also some integration into CloudWatch as well. So CloudWatch will now track the number of items that are deleted by, by TTL, by Time to Live. And that's really useful because you can kind of see how many items are being deleted and keep track of that. And if you think that maybe too many are being deleted or too few, you can obviously do something about that. So it might be that you've got the, the expiration timestamps not quite as you'd like them. So quite a nice feature, Pete. Just makes that time to live feature even richer. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, there's usually a function people apply to, I want to be expiring X percentage of my data after X amount of time. So um, now we give you some more telemetry to be able to see that. Very useful. Exactly. Very, very nice. So, Russ, now, in, 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 the, in the theme of you know getting you out of your database comfort zone, um, <laughs> How about you talk about ECS? I think it'd be awesome. Look, everyone loves ECS, Pete, and uh, <laughs> and uh, even big data specialists like yourself. Even big data people love ECS. So ECS, of course, is our uh, EC2 container service that allows you to run uh, and control containers. Uh, now, previously, when you were launching and stopping container services, you needed to do that manually or integrate with an external scheduler which was obviously not ideal. So what we've added now is the ability for you to schedule tasks through the console for fixed time intervals. So number of minutes or hours or days that will basically then run tasks on that regular schedule. So that's uh, that's really nice. You can kind of start and stop stuff um, on a regular basis. And in addition, you can actually set ECS as a CloudWatch events target which means that you can launch tasks um, within ECS by using CloudWatch events. So again, just really helps you to automate 
uh, as much as uh, as you possibly can, Pete. Yeah, which is very cool because uh, you know we've had things like scheduling, you know, auto scaling groups for EC2 instances, and you know, um, you know, scaling up, scaling down. It's very cool to see how ECS is, uh, you know, building all that functionality into the actual, you know, highly stackable containers that are running in your EC2, um, you know, Docker fleet. Um, I think it's very cool. Indeed. Wow. Indeed. Now, it's a here. while ago, hmm. sorry, I was going to say a while ago. We uh, covered the announcement of AWS Greengrass, and we're very pleased to see that it's now generally available. Tell us more, Pete. Indeed. <laughs> I've been waiting months to use a sound effect in the show, so I couldn't help myself. So, <laughs> Greengrass, you guys would have heard about this at reInvent. Um, it's now gone. It's generally available. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with Greengrass, think of the IoT service um, you know, where people have been using in AWS backend to connect, you know, sensory devices and, you know, machine to machine communication in Greengrass essentially allows you, uh, to basically build you know, applications that are embedded out in the field uh, and they do want to connect to the uh, AWS cloud, the IoT servers, but sometimes they may not have enough power or connectivity. So they're out in the field. Um, uh, they're generally low powered. Uh, connectivity is a premium. So Greengrass essentially is software that lets you run your local compute, your messaging, your data processing and synchronization of state uh, for all of your connected devices in a very secure way. Um, such that if you happen to um, um, have a fleet of devices, let's call it a smart home or a smart you know factory or or you know a smart city, uh, you may want to have devices talking to each other as well as talking to the cloud. So Greengrass gives you the ability to, uh, you know, um, as you write Lambda functions, for example, which you may have written in Python, uh, you can take your Lambda functions and deploy them to your Greengrass devices, which are IoT-enabled devices, um, which basically behave like smart devices. And they have their own device shadow in the cloud, which is basically a, a virtual representation of the state. Um, and these devices, these peripherals, can all talk to each other locally process information um, before passing potentially a summarized view of data uh, all the way up to uh, the cloud, into the IoT service. So AWS Lambda and Greengrass and IoT devices literally all come together here um, with the idea of being able to operate in a very clever, seamless way uh, so that they actually act almost as one. So your smart home should be able to talk to each other. Uh, you may occasionally need to connect to the cloud, uh, but, you know, it's actually there. So, so the idea here is that uh, with Greengrass, uh, you can essentially use the Greengrass core, uh, which runs on your device, uh, and the Greengrass core SDK uh, basically helps you, you know, build the applications, publish messages, and work with shadows. Um, so, when you take a uh, an embedded device, uh, generally. Greengrass Core is what you would be deploying on it, and that requires an x86 um, or an ARM device um, that has version 4.4.11 or a newer version of the Linux kernel, which has the overlay FS function, which means you can actually um, combine file systems together. Um, and what it does is it actually helps you to be able to uh, build your applications. Um, it actually runs on things like a Raspberry Pi, uh, but if you don't happen to have one of those devices, you can still use an EC2 instance and deploy your Greengrass core infrastructure for dev test purposes. And uh, behind the scenes, 
Uh, it literally uses a little protocol called MQTT, uh, which is designed for machine-to-machine -machine communication uh, that ena enables you know these devices to all talk to each other. Um, there are message brokers and, like I said, uh, shadows in the cloud. So all of these, you know, these this, this farms of devices can uh, Rust now talk to each other in a really seamless way. And uh, instead of writing the Lambda in the cloud, that Lambda function can literally sit there and run in your devices on your premises. Well, that is very nice indeed, Pete. And I think one of the interesting things is it kind of introduces some some transport protocols that potentially are not as well known as um, as the ones we used to, like HTTP. So um, MQTT mm. obviously is one that gets talked about a lot. And I know that the only um, uh, passion that you have second to your JSON passion is actually um, a deep love of um, transport protocols. <laughs> so I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit more about MQTT. Sure. So MQTT stands for um, uh, you know, Message Queue Transport. Uh, so Telemetry Transport. Uh, it's actually an ISO standard. Uh, so it's a 20922 uh, ratified ISO standard. Um, it basically describes a lightweight messaging protocol uh, on top of TCP IP. So it doesn't actually replace it. Uh, it's a very lightweight, um, you know, uh, verb uh, type of um method-based uh, communications protocols a published and subscribe model. Um, there is actually a verification, a slight deviation of it. Um, so MQTT 3.1 went to the OASIS specification body um, and it's called MQTTSN for those that are really super nerdy. Uh, and that actually lets you do uh, MQTT over the Zigbee protocol. And Zigbee is very much a, a, a very lightweight radio communications um protocol for having things like light bulbs and very, very small devices talk to each other. So you can actually run MQTT over Zigbee as well as over TCP IP. Um, and it's actually invented by a very clever, well, a couple of clever gentlemen. Uh, one of them was um, Alan Nipper, uh, but also Dr. Andy Stanford-Clark uh, of IBM put this thing together a long time ago, back in the uh, 1990s. Um, and Andy uh, gained a lot of attention around MQTT in the late 2000s by connecting his home automation system to via MQTT to Twitter, Russ. And uh, <laughs> it is some really cool stuff, uh, such as building a better mousetrap. So, so, so Andy actually went off and uh, built an IoT mousetrap. Okay, so for those of you who uh, like to tinker, uh, go and check out... Um, uh, some of his information online. Uh, there was a TED talk that he put together a little while ago where we actually demonstrated the, uh, the better mousetrap in his house. And he's got this idea that innovation starts in the home, which is, is a perfect background story for, um, you know, for, for the IoT industry. Uh, but I digress. Uh, back to MQTT. Uh, so MQTT is really, <laughs> it's, it's, like I say, it's a very much a lightweight protocol, which uses very few bits of information that gets sent over, um, uh, TCP IP, uh, and it's been designed for lightweight devices, which are, you know, not always connected, uh, have very low power um, uh, and processing capabilities. And the MQTT protocol really breaks down into uh, really uh, five different uh, verbs or methods as they're often referred to. And the first one would be co called connect, where you actually connect and establish a connection to the server. You then disconnect, 
obviously, to disconnect from a service. And you can subscribe and unsubscribe from topics. So MQTT is all about a pub and sub so, so, uh, mechanism where you can subscribe to, uh, to topics and notifications, uh, you know, in many ways not too dissimilar from SNS, our simple notification service. Um, and then finally, you can also publish a, to a topic and notify uh, any party of interest. So these are great ways of allowing devices to be only notified when they need to be notified. Um, and it's a, it's a very lightweight protocol, right? So yeah, it's uh, a little bit uh, old. So it's been around for you know since the uh, late ninety nine. What do you mean but... old? What are you talking? What are you talking about old? <laughs> well, it's been, it's been brewing for a while, right? So <laughs> yeah, look, you know, as we always joke about, you know, old things are new again. Um, and it really is an evolution of many different protocols, uh, like TCP/IP. I mean, that's been around since since uh, the late sixties, right? So it has indeed, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you need to have a robust, well battle tested infrastructure before you go and deploy something. And this is a great, another great example of a protocol that uh, you know its time has come. That, now, talking about things that are old, how old? Just take hazard a guess. How old do you think the concept of a FIFO queue is? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, that's a while, a, I would think. Mainframe era, I'm guessing. Mm, yeah. So the reason I say that is because uh, SQS, uh, one of our favorite services, the simple queuing service, uh, has got FIFO queues available for a couple of regions. Uh, and we've just added uh, US East, North Virginia, to that as well. Um, and so I thought you could maybe give us a bit more info on that um, and how it relates to... Um, uh, server-side encryption and things like that. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, but, but to answer your question, I think I had this mental picture as you were asking me about it, uh, maybe ancient ancient Greece when people are lining up for salt. <laughs> and if you don't get in the queue yeah. in the right place, somebody will clobber you over your head. That's true. I'm sure That's that true. happens that, on a regular basis that is, that is in any queues for food. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That is really a first in, first out. That's right. You don't want to be out of line. Uh, so, so back to queuing. So um, the uh, Amazon Simple Queuing Service, or SQS as we like to call it, has been around for quite a while. It's one of our oldest services. Um, and it's really designed to help you build you know, highly elastic um, ways of communicating between tiers within your application. So your web tier might talk to your application tier and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, SQS has been in, in, around for quite a while. We've added things like server-side encryption, so you can encrypt messages. Um, on SQS queues. Uh, and uh, as you just mentioned, yeah, we've also released uh, the FIFO queues, which are special kinds of queues, which are first in, first out. Um, now, these queues are currently available in US East, uh, in Virginia, Ohio, uh, Oregon, and uh, Ireland. Um, and uh, they price the same way as the standard queues. The difference is you push in a message into the FIFO queue and it comes out and arrives in the order you've put it in the queue. Now, that's a little bit different to what you may have seen with uh, the standard or traditional SQS that we've had in the past, whereby you submit your messages into the queue, but sometimes they may arrive out of sequence. Yeah. Uh, and we've had customers actually asking us, what can we do about that? And there's lots of ways of addressing that. And, uh, you know, if you, put my, if you put your computer science hat back on, you know, you know distributed queues uh, always have a challenge around, you know, potentially arriving out of sequence, arriving multiple times. Uh, it's a pretty difficult challenge to solve. Um, so we actually took it on and uh, now have the first in, first out queues. And um, 
You can now use this in your applications to be able to submit your information, your, your packets and your bytes or your jobs or whatever it is that you're pushing into a queue and have them arrive in the order of being placed in the queues. Uh, there is actually one thing to consider, and that is there's a limit of 300 transactions per second. So in other words, 300 messages can be pushed into a FIFO queue. If you're pushing higher than that, consider multiple queues, or, or consider going to the uh, standard queuing for SQS, um, where you can do much higher volumes. And the reason for that is that if you think about a distributed system, it needs to have coordination behind the scenes to make sure that duplicates are removed and the queuing order is maintained. So uh, that is the reason why we have the 300 transactions per second limit uh, set on the queues. Um, and also be aware that um, if you are going to create a FIFO queue, uh, when you create the name of the queue, you have to end it with a dot F-I-F-O, a FIFO suffix. Um, that suffix obviously uh, is, you know, um, about six digits, uh, and the name of a queue is, has a limit of 80 characters. So be aware of those, uh, which also helps you if you do want to find out whether you have a FIFO queue in your AWS account, uh, simply look for a .FIFO queue name. Uh, and that'll make it easier for you to identify those. So it's a great use case um, to use because um, the, these five queues are useful for things like registrations or payment processing uh, or anything that requires essentially the same order of arrival as exit at the other end of the queue, Russ. Very nice, Pete. Now, you mentioned uh, the integration with KMS to do server-side encryption for SQS. Mm. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about that? Go for it. Shoot. So the obvious one is how do I enable it either for a new queue or an existing queue? Sure. So so you can enable it on brand new queues, um, either for the console or programmatically. Um, um, and encryption you can also attach to a, on a per-message basis. Uh, so you can actually enable service encryption for brand new or existing queues uh, through the APIs. And the way you do that uh, is you have to provide the, um, the customer master key or the CMK as we call it, uh, also the ARN, uh, the ID um, of the actual uh, message. So by using that programmatically, you can basically encrypt that particular message. And when we encrypt the message, uh, the server-side encryption uses the KMS keys um, to basically encrypt the body of the message in the SQS queue, whether it's in a standard SQS or a FIFO queue. We don't really mind. Uh, it works across both. Uh, and things that you, do, you should consider is that we don't encrypt uh, things like uh, the queue metadata, so the queue name or the OS attributes. Um, we don't encrypt the message ID, timestamps or attributes or any pre-queue metrics. So uh, just be aware it is the payload that we encrypt um, and uh, you know, everything else still remains in plain text. So be absolutely aware of that. Um, and if you are a super cipher geek, um, the way we actually encrypt the messages is we use the advanced encryption standard, the AES algorithm. In fact, we use the uh, Galois counter motor GCM, uh, also known as AES GCM, and we use 256-bit uh, keys to do the actual encryption, Russ. I love it when you talk crypto, Pete. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Now, uh, moving off from uh, SQS, uh, I know that you're a big fan of the EC2 Systems Manager. What's happening mm. with that? Yes, so the um, EC2 Systems Manager now has added support for SUSE Linux. 
for those of you who are not sure what that is, so Systems Manager is all about uh, giving you the ability to manage fleets of um, you know uh, instances, virtual machines. In fact, to be more generic, it helps you to uh, automatically collect your software inventory uh, because we deploy an agent into the operating system. As long as you provide the IAM permissions, you can then talk back to the system manager. So you can do things like software inventory collection, apply OS patches, uh, so you can automate when those actually get deployed. You can create system images, uh, and of course, configure Windows and Linux operating systems. Uh, in fact, you can also run commands remotely to do whatever it is that you want to do uh, from a central console. Uh, so you can do things like... Um, uh, basically track whether the OS is drifting from a configuration, make sure you're compliant with your software licensing. Um, and because you can take the software agent and deploy it into any operating system, if you happen to be running uh, on-premises still, or you have a part of your fleet in your own data center, you can take uh, the Linux and the Windows agents and deploy them into your operating systems. So now we've now added support for SUSE Linux. So you can go to uh, the Systems Manager GitHub page uh, and download the actual agent. And what it will do is it'll go ahead and uh, join the Systems Manager managed fleet. Uh, so whether it's in cloud or off cloud, uh, you still have access to control your infrastructure. Off cloud. I love, I love that phrase. Not on premise, it's off cloud. <laughs> it's off cloud. It's off cloud. Now tell me... Uh, because I know how much you love Systems Manager. What is your favorite feature of said? There's a few. There are a few, Russ. But one that really stands out for me is the parameter store function. Now, And what that is about is that it provides you the ability. You know how often you, you, know, you key in a connection string for a database or you try to somehow encrypt a, or hide a password in your operating system? Uh, if somebody gets to that infrastructure, uh, they can potentially compromise uh, you know, a password or a connection string. So what the parameter store actually does, it provides you a central store to manage your configuration data. So basically you can take your plain text, such as your connection strings and all your secrets like passwords and have them encrypted for the AWS KMS service or the key management service inside the parameter store. So when your uh, systems are starting up, whether it's a Lambda function, whether it's an EC2 uh, operating system, you know, Windows or Linux, um, or in fact, anything else that has permissions to access the parameter store, um, you know, you can then connect and say, I would like to get this uh, bit of special information. Um, and then the parameter store will actually give you back uh, in plain text that particular bit of uh, that secret. So it's a really nice way of being able to manage all the critical bits of, inf of information, which generally might be scattered across hundreds, if not thousands of, uh, you know, instances, um, and essentially uh, get compromised. So now it's centrally controlled. Uh, it's it's locked down with KMS, so it's encrypted. No one gets to see it except for those that hold the keys. So that's my um, favorite function, right? It's a, it's a great service, and uh, because it cuts across all the different operating systems, including SUSE now, um, it's really great to see. Fantastic. I knew that you'd love that. So again, to keep you on your toes and uh, talking about developer things, um, so AWS CodeStar was um, mm. is out now, uh, and we've added some additional support there, Russ. Do you want to enlighten so our listeners? We we have. Now, uh, we did talk about CodeStar uh, in a previous episode, um, which is a new service for basically creating and managing and working with software development projects. So it just kind of gets you up and running really quickly. Mm. And what we've added 
recently is that we've now integrated that into CloudTrail. So that's going to basically allow you to access the log of all of the CodeStar API calls and then look at them through through CloudTrail. And of course, that's going to deliver them to your S3 bucket of choice, uh, which is really nice. So you can see things like, um, you know, which requests were made to the APIs, the source IP address, who made the request, when, all of the stuff that you want to know. Um, so that's great. And CodeStar, just a reminder, is available in Virginia, Ohio, Oregon, and Ireland. I think it's a really cool thing we've added there, Russ, because with more and more development teams being scattered across the globe, um, it's really a great way to be able to see exactly who's been doing what. I mean, quite often, yeah. you know, dev teams look at the uh, the number of, you know, source control check-ins and forks and things like that or pull requests. Um, this is yet another telemetry uh, source, which can actually give you some more insights into what your developers are actually doing um, as they're developing their application. So uh, I think it's a quite a valuable uh, and really useful uh, mechanism. Um, and look, something else, uh, CloudWatch, CloudWatch events and Lambda functions. Russ, want to it's, tell us about it's, that? It's interesting, actually, while you were talking then, I realized that, that one of the themes of this of this show has been automation and, and telemetry, um, you know, as you've mentioned. And this is another example of that where now you can actually use CloudWatch events as a Lambda event source. So basically uh, when uh, an event comes in, uh, you can then set up a rule that's going to match a certain event and then route that to a Lambda function for processing. So this is really nice, Pete, because what you had to do previously was basically you would have to use the uh, events console, the CloudWatch events console or API, and then configure that to invoke the Lambda function. So this just basically just reduces the friction for you much, much easier to um, configure a CloudWatch event as an event source for your Lambda function. So just, you know, as I said, just all about easing automation, easing the integration between the different services. And look, and I love AWS CloudWatch events. I mean, it's such a great way of seeing exactly what's going on in your AWS environment. Things being turned on, things being turned off, uh, changes going on. It's a, it's an awesome way of doing it. Now having that hooked into Lambda directly, um, yeah, just simplifies that integration point. Indeed, indeed. Now talking of uh, you know things evolving and adding more functionality, I know that you're a big fan of X-ray as well, and I mm. think we've added a couple of a couple of really really uh, really nice. Features again, just to try and um, make it more usable and more, uh, and give you kind of richer information. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, yeah, so you guys heard me get very excited about AWS X-Ray, which is a great way of doing distributed traces and see where um, the bottlenecks and performance um, uh, areas uh, that may require addressing both in dev and and um, uh, you know prod environments. And uh, so X-Ray now supports the ability to visualize the client and server latency distributions uh, for services across your entire application stack. So uh, what that really means is that when you go into uh, your uh, your X-Ray console, the service map, uh, which gives your graphical visualization of how components in your system are actually talking to each other in the actual service map. Um, you know, there you can see, you know, slow requests, fast requests, database queries, syncs or async calls. Uh, we've now added the ability that when you click on one of those, either the node or the edge, uh, we now give you a, an actual graph and the graph gives you great visibility um, so you can analyze and debug your distributed applications and uh, figure out, you know, the underlying services that are also being called and and how they're being sequenced and how they're actually performing. Um, and what's really nice about that is that um, 
Have you guys ever noticed how when you zoom into a graph, because they give you a graphical view of the actual distribution of all of the activities that are happening in uh, in a node, for example. Uh, so you can see the error rates or the throttles. Um, when you zoom into a graph, you start to get more and more uh, visibility in detail. And what's interesting about that is that what you're actually looking for when you're debugging generally is the outlier. And the outlier generally occurs once in a blue moon. And that's probably the defect or, or the bottleneck or the bug you're trying to address. So when you get a graph, usually the graphs don't actually get to show you the tens of thousands of requests that may have traversed through a particular point in your application stack. In, you know, in these traces, we collect all those for you, um, but we give you the ability to actually visualize those. When you take the, you know, the world or the... Um, uh, the macro view, quite often the outliers get averaged out, Russ, so they're not easily visible. Mm. Um, and quite often when you draw it up, you can actually lose details. So people spend a lot of time actually drilling in and zooming into a particular part of a, a graph. Um, and that's actually one of the problems that we actually had to address. So when you think about those outliers, uh, it's quite challenging to actually figure out how to actually collect and display those. Uh, so the team actually took on a challenge to be able to give you that. So uh, we're using a very special algorithm. We're using dynamic bucket sizing, uh, and we use this thing, something called the uh, the T-Digest algorithm. And what it does is it creates really clever ways of bucketing requests and latencies and all of the attributes you're trying to track. So when you do zoom in, we will show you uh, the actual outliers, which are the very things you're probably looking for. So it's a, it's a great extension extension to x-ray as you guys know i'm a big fan of it um what's nice about this even further is now you can get you know down to the micro level uh especially when trying to debug and visualize what exactly is going on in your stack so yeah like russ um Great improvements, uh, great new features. Um, and, you know, because I also love databases, um, tell me about cloning because uh, that's something else that often comes up in my developer conversations. So, Pete, how often have you thought, I want to do a little bit of tuning or a little bit of testing, a little bit of development work. And obviously I don't want to do that on the production database because that's a big no-no. And you've had to take a backup of the production and then restore it uh, and then work on the restore. And you've thought, is there a better way to do this? Surely there's a all faster way. Have you thought all the time? All the time. I know. I know. <laughs> I can see you there beavering away, just going. This must be easier. So, a really interesting capability that we've added to Amazon Aurora is the ability to create a database clone. Now, what this does is that it essentially creates another database that points to the the storage of the production database. Okay. So what it means is that it's much, so two things. One, it's obviously much, much faster to come up because it's not actually copying data around. And secondly, you're not being charged for um, any additional storage space uh, initially because we basically just point to the same disk. Now, what you can then do is obviously you can then work on that on that database, do your testing, et cetera, without, without affecting the production database. Now, the way this works because the next, because the question I know that you're going to ask me is, so what happens if I change things on either the production database or the clone database? What happens That's then? Exactly right. Mm-hmm. See, I can read your mind. I knew that. Ah. So, so imagine a scenario where you've got a, a source database, your production database, and let's say there's there's four pages. Um, so, as you know, once you get into the kind of lower um, bowels of the storage system on databases, they're known as pages. So, let's say there's four pages. And then you create a clone. So that clone is going to also point to exactly the same four pages. And that's all good. Now, if the source database makes a change, let's say to page one, 
does some kind of update that happens to be on page one, what will happen is that a new page one will be created and the source database will use that new one, but the clone will still point to the original page one. Got it. So it won't see that change. And if, so you and fork it, right? So it's been forked you're essentially, down the data. That, you're essentially forking the data set, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similarly, if the clone makes a change, let's say it changes page four, then a new page four will be created that only the clone can see and the, the source database obviously still points to the original page four. So in this way, so that they're obviously, they're not going to stay in sync. Um, so it's not like a read replica. You're not, you're not using it to stay in sync for a long period of time. You're really just using it uh, for the ability to do testing and development and things like that, um, as opposed to kind of ongoing, um, keeping them in sync ongoing. But a really nice, quick way to, uh, to do that. And just a couple of limitations I wanted to mention you can't clone them across regions, which you know kind of makes sense. So you want you can only do it in the same region. You can't currently do it across accounts. So you have to do it in one account. Um, so just a couple of things to be uh, aware of there. You can do it. Um, you can provide a different VPC for your clone, um, but there's some limitations around that. You just need to be aware of um, as well. But uh, yeah, really, uh, really nice feature to 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 help uh, Dev and Test Pete. So, so the cost, how does that affect my costing, Russ, if we, if we share in the same pages? And, well, I, and I don't fork anything. I just you know, try to mimic a, a, a new function that I may have built against the existing database. Yeah, that's right. Well, basically, there'll be no additional storage charges because you know, we're not creating any additional storage space. So obviously, you're going to be paying for that new instance, but, uh, but not the, the uh, associated storage. Um, and that's one of the really nice things as well is obviously it's, it's keeps the cost down for, for your dev and test capability. Which is very, very important to our dev test community. Um, indeed, now, indeed. We, you mentioned the word cross-region just before. Um, what else can you tell us about RDS and cross-region copying? Yeah, this is just a quick one, but um, what we've added now is the ability to copy encrypted database snapshots across regions if you're using the TDE capability within either Oracle or SQL Server on RDS. So TDE is the transparent data encryption for both of those engines. And previously, we allowed you to to copy unencrypted database snapshots or snapshots that were encrypted via KMS across regions, but you couldn't do it with, with TDE. So we've added that functionality now. So if you are a TDE user, uh, of RDS, either with the Oracle or Microsoft SQL Server flavor, and uh, you want to do a cross-region uh, snapshot, you can now you can now do that, and that works across all of the commercial regions. So essentially, all the uh, the non-government regions. So that's uh, a quick a quick one, but a nice one, Pete. So Russ, last show we talked about um, again one of my other favorite features, and I have a lot of those as you can tell. Um, the ability to be able to turn off an IDS incident and turn it back on, and uh, and uh, we, we we parted in the last show when we said uh, we will turn off the IDS instance on after seven days, and uh, we did say that would follow up and let our listeners know what that reason for that was. So, do, would, would you like to enlighten us? Yeah, that's true. We did we did kind of <laughs> leave that one hanging, uh, and when he, when when we thought about it, it was actually pretty obvious that um, obviously we need to make sure that that database remains um, up to date in terms of patching. 
that's why we turn it back on just to make sure that it's uh, it's getting the, any uh, patches that it needs to, uh, and obviously we'll notify you when it comes back on as well. So um, so that was the reason for that. If you were wondering. Perfect. Yep. So there you go. CloudWatch events that are rescue and notifications. Again. So again, let's let's just dive a little bit deeper in the uh, big data space. And and I know you love Spark and Apache uh, and Presto and encryption and all that good stuff that we've been talking about. Um, you want to give us a little bit of an update as to what's been happening in the big data world? Yeah, just a quick one on this, Pete. Uh, as you know, um, EMR is our managed uh, Hadoop service and we support, we try and support um all of the, the the new releases across the open source community, so we try and get them into EMR as quickly as mm-hmm. we can once we've once we've tested them. So there's a new version of EMR uh, that's come out that's got some updates to Spark, to HBase, to Flink, uh, and also to Apache Mahot. So if you're not familiar with Mahot, that is uh, machine learning libraries, um, and that new version of Mahot actually now allows it to run on Spark 2.x which is quite nice. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, now, most of those are just kind of uh, bug fixes and minor improvements. But one thing we have added, which people have asked for, is the ability for Presto to have encryption turned on for the data that's traveling between the nodes. So we've previously had okay. this for, um, so if you're using MapReduce or Tez or Spark, we would, uh, if you wanted it, if you turn it on, obviously, um, encrypt the communication between the nodes. Um, and it's different for each of those engines because they all do things slightly differently. Uh, and we've now added Presto to that as well. So if you're a Presto user and you do want to encrypt the data between nodes in the cluster, um, you can now turn that on, which is, uh, which is very, very nice. Yes, and you know, you mentioned Mahout just then. Um, you know, when I first came across Mahout, you know, obviously the machine learning side of things, it's, it's fascinating. It's all about the logos, Russ. There, there is such a large ecosystem of logos in the big data space. And every time I think of Mahout, I, I think of that little little rider on the back of the elephant. Uh, that's right. Who's meant to be training and doing machine learning. And then I think of the feather, the Apache feather. And it's like, hang on, do you tickle the elephant? <laughs> Fascinating stuff, which which kind of brings us now to the next topic, which is around um, the deep learning Amy's now becoming more available um, to, across the uh, regions. Yeah, so we've talked about this a couple of times. So um, as you know, we've released an AMI, an, an Amazon machine image, specifically for deep learning. So it's got a lot of the the deep learning libraries and algorithms on there, um, you know, such as uh, TensorFlow and MXNet, etc. And we're constantly updating those with with newer versions. And um, we've had, had a refresh on those recently. We've also made them available in um, other regions as well. So they're now available. Uh, the new regions are Ohio, Tokyo, Seoul, and Sydney, as well as uh, North Virginia, Oregon, and Ireland. And the other thing, Pete, is that we've also updated the CloudFormation template mm-hmm. uh, with, those, uh, with the new AMI IDs. And, of course, the CloudFormation template helps to use the AMI to actually then spin up your cluster for you. So that's nice because you don't have to kind of do a lot of the heavy lifting involved in that. And also, this updated configuration provisions and configures one of your other favorite services, the Elastic File System, mm-hmm. EFS. And that just, we did that so that you could basically share results and logs and data across the cluster nodes, which is quite nice. So. Yeah, just a little refresh on the deep learning stuff. But if you're into that, um, check it out because there's a, a nice, a few little goodies there that you can uh, take advantage of. 
Absolutely. And uh, speaking of MXNet, uh, the blogosphere lit up just in the last few days when uh, Adrian Cockroft, who's been on a show previously, uh, was showing some slides because we made public announcements how uh, we're supporting the MXNet uh, open source community. Uh, I believe the number is somewhere in the order of 30% of commits to MXNet has come from uh, from Amazon and AWS. So, uh, you know, we're certainly keeping true to our commitments uh, to supporting the open source community. But Russ, look at the time. We are so much out of it. Um, you better go. We must go. We must go. We must let our listeners get on get on with the rest of their day. So, guys, thanks for tuning in and uh, hope to uh, you know be on the air shortly. Thanks very much. Bye. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. P. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.